Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. The January 6th insurrection after the 2020 presidential election has produced a slate of inquiries on Capitol Hill and in the Justice Department. Today, we're going to talk with the Washington Post reporter who has been covering all of it, catch up on where we are, what's likely to happen, and what some of the consequences might be. Then we're going to talk with Rick Pluta of the Michigan Public Radio Network about the local implications of the hearings and investigations. It's all next on Detroit Today. But first, the news from NPR. And as always, I'm really glad that you have joined us. In the middle of the day, they came. Fed by the lie that an election had been stolen and stoked by the most powerful person in the United States. Tens of thousands of people stormed the Capitol, Washington, on January 6th, 2021, to prevent then-President Donald Trump from having to leave office, effectively to prevent the peaceful transfer of power, to stop the wheels of democracy from churning. Now, America has had tumult since its beginning. We've had slavery, we've had Jim Crow, we've perpetuated genocidal policies against indigenous peoples. But since more fully embracing democracy in the 1960s, this country has really tried to honor and respect the broad capacity of that word, democracy. The rule of law, the right to vote, the relinquishing of power, these are all really critical pieces of a functioning democracy. And they have functioned really well for a really long time, at least up until that January 6th insurrection. But of course, we all know these things have grown more unstable for a number of years in our country. And this January 6th attempt to stop the results of a presidential election was just the pinnacle of all that instability. So there have been a lot of stories unveiled as the insurrection was, as everything is these days, recorded live. And a committee in the House of Representatives was established to properly tell the narrative of what happened that day, who was responsible for it, and help decide what some of the consequences should be. That committee is holding its hearings now, and we are all watching quite, quite riveted, in fact, by the testimony, by the footage of what happened on January 6, 2021. I don't know that I've seen a single event get more people's attention at one time than those hearings the other night. So where are we? And what's going to happen next? And what will the consequences ultimately be for the people who were involved in all of this. That's where we begin the conversation today. And here to talk about what we know and what we are learning is Jacqueline Anilamani. She is a congressional investigations reporter for the Washington Post. Uh, Jacqueline, welcome to Detroit Today. Thanks for having me. So catch us up for people who are not tuning in, and that's not a lot of people, I don't think. Uh, Talk about what this January 6th House Committee is, how it got organized, and uh, what they're up to. So the committee is uh, 11 months old. We've just entered their public phase of the investigation uh, with hearings that started last week, uh, continued yesterday, and will continue on Wednesday and Thursday. The committee was created after a bipartisan um, committee 
committee what deal to to make a committee collapsed in uh, the Senate last year, and instead an independent select committee was formed. Um, It consists of two Republicans, Vice Chairwoman Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger, and seven Democrats, so it's technically bipartisan, but uh, Kinzinger and Cheney have since since joining the committee, essentially been expunged uh, from their colleagues in the GOP House conference. Um, The committee has collected over 140,000 records and documents over the course of their investigation. They've interviewed over a thousand different witnesses and individuals who are involved in the efforts to overturn the election. Uh, And um, they have collected and followed up on over nearly 500 tips called into their tip line. And we are seeing the fruits of their labor now for the first time visually. Yesterday, uh, there was a hearing on the big lie and how President Trump uh, cultivated and continued to propagate unsubstantiated claims of election fraud, despite being told many times from his top senior advisors uh, that there was no such evidence to support his claims. And tomorrow we're going to hear um, about his attempt to use and leverage the Department of Justice in order to stay in power. On Thursday, we'll hear from top officials on Vice President Mike Pence's team to hear about the pressure campaign that Trump and his co-conspirators, John Eastman, also leveraged uh, in order to try to get uh, the former vice president to delay or halt the electoral certification on January 6th. Then there are supposed to be two more hearings after that, um, but there could be more even depending on, on what the committee finds. This is a live investigation right now, uh, and, and which means that they're actively in the background to conduct continuing to hold private depositions and interviews. They just received a batch of key evidence last week, actually, from John Eastman, some emails that a federal judge had called evidence of furtherance of crime. So, Uh, Again, there is a lot to be sifting through, but essentially the committee is trying to make the argument um, uh, that, you know, the president was at the center of this effort to overturn the results of the election and did so through a variety of schemes. So I'm going to throw a word out there, witch hunt. Uh, A lot of Republicans, uh, maybe a lot of conservatives have a problem with the way this committee is is uh, configured, I guess, and what the committee is doing, um, it, are those fair criticisms? Should should people be worried about uh, this being a partisan exercise? You used the word bipartisan. There are Republicans on the committee, but uh, people say this this is all a setup. I mean, I guess if, if being pro democracy is partisan, then I think. You could levy, quote-unquote, partisan attacks, but I think all Republicans should ostensibly be pro-democracy. And I think what you see here is Republicans uh, realizing that politically this exercise is not to their advantage and wanting to stay away from it. But look, Republicans have the opportunity to serve on this committee as well. And Mm -hmm. that's something that you're hearing Republicans privately say as these hearings go on, that it was a giant mistake for House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy to pull every single member off of the committee after House Speaker Nancy Pelosi said that she didn't want a few of the members that he chosen, Jim Jordan and Jim Banks, primarily because of their involvement in the insurrection, uh, to, to be a part of the investigation. But if he, he could have left other members on, Troy Niels, Rodney Davis, people who have claimed to be conducting their own counter-investigations. Um, and I, there might be some valid criticisms in that People like Rodney Davis are asking, uh, you know, for there to be more of a focus on the security of the Capitol and the failures that actually led to the rioters being able to breach the perimeter. Um, But at the end of the day, focusing on just that misses the bigger picture of what led to the riot, what fomented the the, uh, insurrection and and actually made those protesters and pro-Trump supporters as rioters um, breach the perimeter and, and siege the Capitol in a deadly violent assault. So I think uh, a lot of the, the attacks we're hearing from Republicans right now, one, are not factual or based in actual events of what happened. And, and um, 
two are also right now coming at the behest of the former president who is who wants a more robust defense of him right now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I also want to talk uh, about uh, Bill Barr, who was uh, the attorney general of, of the United States uh, at the time this, this happened. And the commission has shown how Trump was informed by people like Barr, how and why the allegations of election fraud that he was uh, propagating were false, including right here in Detroit. Now, we, we had a lot of uh, trouble here in the 2020 election with, uh, with people who showed up as we were trying to count ballots, saying that the ballots were fraudulent, that there were ballots being, being created, all kinds of things. Nothing, none of that turned out to be true. Of course, there's no evidence that that happened. Now we learn that Bill Barr tried to tell Donald Trump exactly that. And I want to listen just uh, quickly to, to what he said about it. You know, he said people saw boxes coming into the counting station at all hours of the morning and so forth. And I explained to him, Mr. President, there are 630 precincts in Detroit. And unlike elsewhere in the state, they centralized the counting process. So they're not counted in each precinct. They're moved to counting stations. And so the normal process would involve boxes coming in at all different hours. So there's nothing... And I said, did anyone point out to you, did all the people complaining about it point out to you, you actually did better in Detroit than you did last time? I mean, there's no indication of fraud in Detroit. No indication of fraud in Detroit. Bill Barr says that's what he told the president. Uh, how damning is that testimony that the attorney general of uh, of our country told the president, this is all nonsense, uh, and, and that the president still went ahead and said the things that he did and incited people to to take action. Uh, It's pretty damning. I mean, this is a, quote unquote, very serious person. This was one of the few people in the Trump administration who was actually uh, respected inside the administration and had a good professional reputation outside of the administration. Um, You know, he told Trump repeatedly as he indicated and laid out in very blunt terms yesterday in this videotaped private depositions that he thought these claims were quote-unquote bullshit. Um, and ultimately, it's what led to his resignation. That being said, we did not hear this very publicly from Bill Barr. He, yes, at one point told an Associated Press reporter that he found no such evidence of uh, the voter fraud that Trump was was claiming to that, that existed, um, but in his resignation letter, he praised the president, and we did not hear much from him at, after December, uh, after the fact, uh, as the president continued this campaign to overturn the results of the election. And then in his absence, you tried to use the DOJ to execute that plan. Yeah. Uh, I'm talking with Jacqueline Alamani. Uh, she's a congressional investigations reporter for The Washington Post, has been covering the January 6th committee in the House that's looking into what happened on January 6th, 2021 uh, at the Capitol. Uh, we'd love to hear from you during the conversation as well. What do you make of the January 6th insurrection? Who do you think it was responsible for it happening? Uh, what do you make of former President Donald Trump's role in all of this? And give us a sense if you're watching all of this. Are you paying close attention to the hearings in Washington, watching the footage of what happened that day, listening to people talk about what they did and what they said in the lead up uh, to all of that? Uh, Also, give us a sense uh, if you are somebody who thinks maybe this is all a little overblown, that uh, this wasn't as big a deal uh, as uh, as Congress is making it uh, out to be, uh, are you somebody who defends the actions that uh, that many Americans took on that day to try to stop the counting of uh, votes in the presidential election? Um, are you somebody who believes that Donald Trump should still be the president of the United States based on? the outcome of that election. Uh, as always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and uh, we can work you into the conversation. Uh, Jacqueline, before we get to, to listeners, I, w- I also want to talk about this uh, revelation that 
former President Trump also got his supporters to give $250 million uh, to him and his efforts through his election fraud ca- uh, claims. This is uh, a, a subject of profound legal interest at this point. Uh, talk about what that could mean for, for Donald Trump. Yeah, so look, the committee has an ex- explanatory mandate, and any criminal referral that they're going to make would be purely symbolic and, and a major political statement. It, it, further, the committee has actually already argued in court filings that are that have more of a legal significance that the former president committed multiple crimes along with co-conspirators that have been named, John Eastman in particular. And that was an, came out of an opinion issued by a federal judge in California, Judge David Carter. That being said, at the end of this process, the committee could put out a formal referral to uh, the Department of Justice that would essentially say, you know, these people committed these crimes. We recommend that you prosecute them for this. But right now, the committee's decided on sort of the vehicle that they want to use in order to communicate what those crimes exactly are. Last night, Chairman Benny Thompson told us uh, after the second hearing that, you know, they had ruled out a a formal criminal referral and that we wouldn't be hearing that. And shortly thereafter, there were some some tweets that directly contradicted that, saying, uh, you know, one, the committee hadn't made a decision. That's what Vice Chairwoman Liz Cheney tweeted. And then Elaine Luria tweeted a little further, saying that not only had the committee not made a decision yet, but it was their responsibility if the president did commit crimes, which the committee has already found, to actually make that criminal referral. Of course, it would be extraordinary either way, regardless of, the, of you know whether this is symbolic or not, for Congress to refer a former president for to the Justice Department for crimes. Mm-hmm. Um, but the Department of Justice is already uh, making their way up to the former president right now in terms of their own criminal investigation. So it's not that far fetched at this point. Yeah. Uh, I want to read a couple of social media comments that we've gotten. Ken on Twitter says, the facts are damning, but we all saw the video and know what happened. They need to get some testimony about the planning. Uh, heard for the first time live. If they want to change the game with the same impact as Watergate, it needs to be bombshells that explode in real time. Uh, Michael on Twitter says, uh, just to note that the Republicans in the Senate voted not to set up a bipartisan commission to have an investigation into the January 6th coup. Alex on Twitter says, pretty damning stuff, but it won't matter. Basically, impeachment part three, fart in the wind of our current political discourse. A little colorful language there from uh, from Alex. Uh, Jacqueline, I know we're, we're going to have to let you go. I want to get you to, to forecast just a little bit uh, of where we're headed with, with this. What's the likely outcome here? Yeah. So actually, we have some breaking news just in this very moment. The committee has postponed tomorrow's hearing and pushed it back to Thursday. We're not quite sure of the reasons why yet, but um, tomorrow's hearing is supposed to be focused again on the DOJ. We were going to hear from Acting Attorney General Jeffrey Rosen, Rich Donahue, who worked under him, and Stephen Engel, uh, all three people who objected in person to the former president's push during a meeting in the Oval Office to install a Trump loyalist at the very top of the Department of Justice um, to try to uh, find more evidence of voter fraud and do potentially unconstitutional and illegal things that there was no evidence to support. Um, And on Thursday, we were going to hear from Vice President Pence's team. So Mm -hmm. that schedule is now a little bit in flux, um, but there is still a hearing on Thursday. Next week, going ahead, we'll hear about the alternate slate of electors. That was the uh, the scheme at a very local level to submit Trump supporters as electors. Uh, and then we'll also hear about sort of the, the growth of domestic extremism uh, in the U.S. and how sort of our modern day uh, radicalization process and, and how those groups live on the Internet and, and the connections between um, Trump's orbit and those players. And then the final hearing is going to be the big finale Uh, That's going to really look through the 187 minutes of Trump's silence as the violence was ongoing. And that, I think, potentially we'll hear from Cassidy Hutchinson, Mark Meadows' former chief of staff, his his chief aide, 
And she was privy to a lot of conversations. She was inside the room as all of this was playing out in the lead up to January 6th and on January 6th. And she very well could ultimately be the next John Dean. Wow. Wow. Okay, uh, Jacqueline Elementi, Elementi, it's really great to uh, to have you here with us. Uh, thanks so much for joining us on Detroit today. Anytime. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Uh, when we come back, we are going to continue talking about January 6th and the potential consequences from it. Uh, we are going to talk with Rick Pluta, who is the senior state capital correspondent for the Michigan Public Radio Network, about how Michigan Republicans are reacting to the hearings, but also about implications for some of the folks from Michigan who were involved in January 6th. We also want to get to you on the phones and on social media. 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook and to Twitter. The comments there. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. As always, thanks for tuning in. We are talking about January 6th, 2021, uh, the day that uh, that tens of thousands of uh, Americans descended on the U.S. Capitol uh, in order to try to stop the counting of votes from the 2020 presidential election. And while, of course, those insurrectionists came from states all across the country. It seems uh, notable, at least to me, that there were a lot of folks from Michigan who decided that this was uh, the calling that they were going to answer. There are a number of insurrectionists from Michigan. And even more notable, I think, is the fact that there are a number of folks who participated in this January 6th insurrection uh, who are from Michigan and are now running for public office here in the state. One of those individuals, Ryan Kelly, uh, is uh, seeking the governorship here in Michigan, and he was arrested by the FBI recently for his participation in the insurrection. Uh, the things he's charged with, we should note, are misdemeanors, uh, and he's been released on bond and is back on the campaign trail. But uh, we are indeed in strange times, I think, here in the state of Michigan, uh, watching as this all unfolds. So to help us uh, think about all this and uh, learn how Michigan Republicans are reacting to what we're learning in Washington, we've got longtime senior state capital correspondent for the Michigan Public Radio Network, Rick Pluto with us. Rick, welcome back to Detroit Today. Hi, Stephen. So before we get to the charges... Let's talk about who Ryan Kelly is. That's someone that's not a name that we're terribly familiar with in uh, Michigan politics. Uh, who is he and what's he done? Um, he is a business person. He works in real estate like uh, pretty much the entire Republican field. He has no political history, no history of elected office or running for things, you know, something that we could kind of pin a record on. And so this is actually, you know, something concrete compared to uh, what we've seen before. Although Ryan Kelly has made you know, no secret that, you know, he considers himself a, a, a Trumpster, that uh, he says that he got involved in politics because he was opposed to, um, you know, vaccine mandates and, you know, sort of that take our country back rhetoric that we hear, you know, a lot, you know, within the, uh, you know, within the Republican field. And he's turned out to be pretty popular in the um, Republican base, except especially the the angry portion, you know, of the, you know, of the Republican base. Um, you know, he doesn't have the same support as, say, a, you know, a Tudor Dixon who is polling well and, you know, something that's very valuable you know, to her campaign is that she's won the coveted divorce, uh, divorce um, endorsement and all the financial support that comes with it. Um, there's Kevin Rinke, who's trying to sort of position himself as a more standard Republican, although reaching out to that uh, 
Trump base, his slogan is, uh, you know, won't back down. We've got Ralph Rebant, who's, you know, running as kind of the uh, values candidate. He's a, a lay minister, uh, I believe, and, you know, and he's running a campaign where he's trying to, you know, reach out to um, Christians, you know, within the Republican, you know, coalition, people who you know, will vote based on values and, uh, and, and religious values. So I guess to, you know, bring it, you know, back around, I mean, Ryan Kelly is someone who kind of thrills, you know, a lot of the Republican base because, you know, he's, you know, loud and angry and, um, you know, kind of speaks their language. So let's talk about how the um, how this question shapes up in this field. Uh, this seems to be the dividing line in many ways among candidates. Uh, the, 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 the very question, who won the 2020 presidential election? Uh, seems to be the thing that, that every candidate's got to figure out how to answer and then how to shape their campaign in a way that will get people energized on that side um, you know, to, to, to vote for them. Um, the, the, of course, that's all very odd because there just is not any evidence at all uh, that's been produced to suggest that, that there was any fraud at, uh, at all in, in the 2020 election. And yet, you know, I, I, I saw a television commercial recently that Kevin Rinke is now running where he's talking about all the things he's going to do to cut down on voter fraud, and he's got a very funny character in the in the in the commercial, a a, a, a zombie essentially, uh, suggesting mm-hmm. that we have uh, that we have dead people voting. Uh, how powerful is that question, and how powerful are these ideas that voter fraud is real uh, on on the Republican side? Is it still defining? the field? Uh, and will it, I guess, define the field as we get closer to the August primary? It is. And, and we should point out, and I, and I think that this really matters. It's not that anyone's saying that there was, you know, no fraud, no irregularities, because I mean, that that happens in, in every election. And of course. you can go back to, you know, Bush Gore, when, you know, John Engler sort of famously said that what the public has a right to expect is a fair election but not a perfect election because that animal, you know, doesn't exist. And then sure. there's no evidence anywhere that anything happened that would have changed the results in Michigan or anywhere else in terms of the presidential race. And, you know, we sort of see more and more of the candidates trying to straddle that line where they're not going back and in any significant way relitigating the presidential election, but still, you know, speaking the language of we can make elections fairer, you know, and, and, and like the ad that you just turned out where, you know, I, I mean, Mr. Rinky doesn't make any specific allegations other, you know, than this sort of very generalized dead people, you know, dead people shouldn't vote. And and based, by the way, on a on a false premise that dead people are showing up at the polls and voting. There are dead people in the voter list. There, there always are. There are dead people. There are people who, you know, have moved and it's always, it's a constant chore of election workers to keep cleaning those up. And those people typically don't show up and vote in elections. They've moved on, I mean, to, you know, another place either in this world or the next. But it's not, you know, the idea that, that dead people are showing up and, and changing the results of elections. There's there's just no evidence of that, uh, you know, of that whatsoever. But that doesn't, again, stop candidates from speaking the language and even if not making the, the, the explicit charge, you know, at, at least you know, sort of pretending that that's a problem. And and so the the power of that idea again, though, on yeah. the on the Republican side, you have a lot of Republicans who've come out, uh, Republican officials who've come out and said, "Look, we got to move on from from this. This right. is not this is not true, uh, and it's doing damage to the infrastructure of our democracy to continue." 
right. suggesting that it's true. And yet the, the candidates, especially for governor, um, mm -hmm. seem overwhelmingly <clears throat> attracted to this idea. And even some of the candidates who've been disqualified because of uh, their fraudulent signatures, mm -hmm. which is kind of ironic, uh, and they maybe you even point out it. that in the Secretary of State race and the Attorney General race, that's, I mean, that's the foundation yes. of those campaigns where, you know, they've, these candidates have been endorsed by a party convention, and we can expect that they will actually be the uh, party nominees after the, um, you know, after the August nominating convention. But that's, that's basically their platform. I'm talking with Rick Pluta. He is the senior capital correspondent for the Michigan Public Radio Network. We're talking about uh, January 6th, uh, the insurrection in 2021 that took place in Washington and the Michigan implications of, uh, of that event. Uh, the people from Michigan who went to Washington to participate, the number of people who participated in that who are now seeking public office here in the state of Michigan uh, and what that means for the party as well as our state. Of course, we want to hear from you during the conversation as well. Call and tell us what you make of the ongoing inquiries into uh, what happened on January 6th. Uh, who do you think was responsible for that? Do you believe that former President Donald Trump, with the things that he said that day, was one of the people who uh, should be held responsible for what happened. Um, also, we would love to hear from you if you're somebody who is sympathetic to the idea that perhaps uh, the 2020 presidential election was quote-unquote <clears throat> stolen from Donald Trump. Uh, call and tell us what tells you that there, uh, there's validity to that claim uh, and what you think should uh, should be done about it. As always, uh, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook and to Twitter, put comments there, and we'll work you into the conversation. Let's start today with uh, Bernadette in Old Redford. Bernadette, welcome to the show. Good morning. Hey. I hope that Donald Trump has some Obamacare because he's going to have a heart attack and need some <laughs> medical care after watching these hearings. <laughs> Uh, I want to know who was the uh, executive director and producer, Spike Lee and um, uh, Steven Spielberg, because this was excellent. This presentation wasn't just done by interns on a laptop in somebody's basement. <laughs> this was a cohesive presentation, including the beautiful officer who was injured. She looked like Barbie. Oh, yeah. And these are your own people, Trump. That's and so, uh, so, so, Bernadette, it seems as though you're watching, of course, the hearings and, and taking it all in. I, I agree with you about the extraordinary nature of these presentations and, and how compelling they were. And, and I think a lot of the public would uh, agree with you as well if we if we put stock in, in the ratings uh, of all of that. Uh, uh, Rick Pluta, I wonder, you know, th this happened the same day that Ryan Kelly was, uh, was detained uh, by, by, the, mm -hmm. by the FBI. Is it possible that, that these things will start to backfire, I guess, on, on these candidates? Although Ryan Kelly, I saw, was on Fox <clears throat> News last night uh, talking mm -hmm. with Tucker Carlson about this. So it doesn't seem they're backing away. Um, oh, well, no, first of all, I mean, you own it anyway. We, we should point out that, that there is a, a, a TV producer, uh, an, executive, an executive named uh, James Goldston, who is actually, you know, producing the hearings to, you know, the kind of effect that uh, the caller was just, uh, you know, was just talking about. I mean, in the short term, this is certainly a boost for you know the ryan kelly campaign that it gets people worked up that they're looking at this and saying that you know this can't be a coincidence um by the way um i've talked to some not fbi officials per se but some people who've worked in that arena who've said that you know that's just not true that's not the way these sorts of things work although obviously this is a very unusual situation that you've got to, you know, run it through all of, you know, the levels you've got to, you know, jump through all the hoops and then you execute the warrants as quickly as possible so that the, uh, 
target doesn't, uh, you know, doesn't necessarily uh, disappear. And we should also, I mean, you know, since we're talking about this, we should point out that the arrests probably aren't over, that, uh, you know, the FBI is still trying to uh, identify another 350 people, 250 people who are suspected of assaulting um, law enforcement officers who are at the scene. And just the numbers would suggest that at least some of those people um, would be from, um, you know, from Michigan. So, you know, there, there's still going to be, you know, kind of a rolling news story here um, that may or, you know, may not uh, benefit, you know, the, uh, you know, the Ryan Kelly campaign. Okay, coming up, we're going to continue this conversation about January 6th in Washington and January 6th here in Michigan, the implications in our state of what happened at the Capitol. Uh, we want to continue to hear from you on the phones and on social media. Alex in Northville, Rachel in Ann Arbor, Brad in Shelby. We'll get to you next if you want to join them. 313-577-1019 is the number. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. WDET is your connection to what's happening in Detroit. WDET is your place for open dialogue about the issues that impact you. Stay in the know. This is WDET FM, Detroit's NPR station. This is Detroit Today. I'm Stephen Henderson, and my guest is Rick Pluta, senior capital correspondent for the Michigan Public Radio Network. We're talking about the implications of the January 6th insurrection hearings in Washington here in Michigan in the, the politics of the gubernatorial race here, uh, the races for Secretary of State and Attorney General. They're all implicated, in fact, by the testimony and the footage that we're seeing during these hearings uh, in Washington. Want to hear from you during the conversation as well. 313-577-1019. What do you make of uh, these hearings? What do you make of what happened on January 6, 2021? Uh, and what do you think the consequences uh, should look like? Uh, I want to go back to the phones uh, here and start with Alex in Northville. <clears throat> Alex, welcome to the show. Hi, Stephen. Thanks for hey. taking my call. Yeah, go ahead. Hey, I was uh, I'm from rural Michigan, um, but I live in live and work in Wayne County now. Um, so I was obviously really disturbed when they tried to block the certification of our vote um, following the 2020 presidential election. Mm -hmm. And when I go home, there's still I would say 80 percent of my family members believe that the election was stolen. And I'm wondering if um, Rick might have some advice about how to talk to my family about <laughs> this issue <laughs> in a reasonable way. Yeah, Alex, you are among so many people I hear from uh, who have the same problem that that no matter what you say or or how you broach the subject, there are people who are just really dug in about the idea that there there was some sort of fraud um, uh, that 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 led to Joe Biden becoming the president of the United States, and it can be frustrating, uh, especially when you are talking about family. So, Rick, uh, what wh what do you do? You what's the, I guess, the data point that you point out uh, that, that you think is the strongest to kind of make the case here? Well, um, human psychology and family relationships are outside of my zone. <laughs> right. just, I mean, we, we, we should start there. And, um, you know, I mean, people are very dug in on, um, you know, their politics and, and, you know, what happened to affect the outcome of the election. And, you know, conclusion-based reasoning in analyzing, you know, what happened in any election is not, um, is not a new thing. Um, I have friends and family and, and can attest to that as well. Uh, I don't know, you know, that, that, that data points necessarily help when, you know, there are so many others that, you know, where there's so many things that people can draw on to justify their, um, you know, their, their rationale. And mm -hmm. like I said, you know, the, the, you know, my inner Dr. Joyce brothers, if you're 
old enough to remember her, <laughs> you know, would probably say, you know, just, just, you know, stay away from them for a while. But, you know, to bring it back to the hearings and, you know, the, the charges that are being filed, that, you know, that the hearings seem to be aimed, you know, not at people who have a hard opinion on, you know, one side or the other. Republicans won't even participate in the in the hearings, but on people who are maybe persuadable that, you know, maybe they have opinion, but an opinion, but they could be drawn to believing that, uh, you know, what happened was significant and maybe, you know, maybe change a few minds. And, you know, in terms of just the raw politics of it, um, especially in a state like Michigan, you know, changing a few minds can swing, um, you know, can swing elections or at least, uh, you know, or, or at least have an effect. Yeah. Um, but you know, as we all know from, um, you know, family and, you know, friendly get togethers that, uh, you know, raising your voice and shouting at people, you know, aren't, uh, you know, aren't going to help. And I think that the hearings are meant to at least nudge people towards, you know, reaching, you know, their own, you know, their own conclusions. Yeah, and some uh, sort of fact-based con- conclusion. Sure. Yeah. Uh, so I, I wonder if you can talk That's about... emotional appeal, too. Well, right. That's right. Um, I mean, there's some real uh, compelling... Uh, footage in the in these in these yeah. presentations, uh, but I, I wonder if you can also talk about who in the Republican Party locally uh, are the voices that are the strongest saying this didn't happen and we got to move on and and are they able to to, to kind of separate from from this pack? I know there are not uh, voices in the in the gubernatorial primary primary, but I'm mm-hmm. thinking of office holders and and other officials. Yeah, well, usually when, um, you know, Republicans go down that road, it's they don't argue that the election was fair or that it was um, unfair. They argue that it's over, that um, the election happened and we should be litigating, um, you know, clear and present issues. Inflation, you know, comes to mind. And, you know, not going back and, and trying to persuade a group of people who probably you know, aren't uh, persuadable on uh, one side or the other. Um, there is a um, an organization called the Lincoln Project, which is made up of people who are, you know, disaffected Republicans, you know, people who were Republicans but now consider themselves independents because of, um, you know, the direction that the party has taken under Donald Trump, and they're kind of just trying to, stick it out and, uh, you know, hang in there until Donald Trump's influence over the Republican Party dissipates. I mean, I don't know that that is going to happen. You know, there's kind of a chicken and an egg question here where, yeah, Donald Trump appealed to a, you know, portion of the Republican base, but was that, you know, something that just happened because of the messenger or was there a group of people who were, kind of waiting for, you know, for this moment and for someone to, you know, step in who has that kind of appeal. Yeah. Uh, Again, uh, Alex, good luck uh, trying to have fact-based conversations about this with your family members. Don't give up. Uh, I I know Mm. it's frustrating, but but this is important. This is important stuff. Uh, Let's go next to Rachel in Ann Arbor. Rachel, welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh-huh. Um, the reason why I was calling was just to um, make the point that I do believe that this is Trump's fault. Um, it's my belief that Trump and his inner circle had a lot to do with the planning of the January 6th insurrection. And, you know, to the comment of where they're saying, well, you know, we should be moving on. We This was in the past. We should... Uh, focus on other things mm-hmm. you know that's like saying telling a store owner well you were robbed last week and you were robbed last night so we're not going to we're not going <laughs> to investigate the one from last week yeah. because we should focus on what happened last night right, um, right. and i and if if it had gone the other way if if there was a democrat that was doing um if it had been the democrats that had been behind all that 
uh, I'm sure they would be singing a very different tune. Yeah, yeah Rachel, I really appreciate the call and the thought. And that's a great analogy about uh, investigating a crime that uh, happened last week versus one that happened last night. Uh, Rick, I wonder what you make of the the reaction here if Donald Trump ends up uh, the subject of, of uh, an indictment by the by the Justice Department. Uh, does that does that give some of these candidates some cover, perhaps, to to distance themselves from him, or does it energize his supporters in a way that that makes it harder for uh, candidates to leave us all behind? Well, I mean, the two are not mutually exclusive, um, mm-hmm. but you know, it's it's the candidates who were going, you know, the candidates or elected officials who were going to, um, you know distance themselves are, are already doing that, you know, in some way, you know, some way, shape or form, they're, you know, dipping their toe in the water and seeing, well, if I do this, what happens? And if I do this, then, uh, you know, what happens? And, you know, like we were talking about, you know, a few minutes ago, that the most common avenue seems to be, well, let's stop litigating the previous election and look ahead because there are you know, a lot of problems that we could use as, you know, as, as issues to run on. But, uh, you know, the question is, at some point, is there going to be a critical mass within the Republican coalition of candidates and constituents going, nope, that was just, you know, that was that was just wrong. I mean, kind of like the way people look at Nixon today, Richard Nixon and, Mm -hmm. you know, the whole Watergate scandal, which at the time was dismissed as just politics to this day. There are some people who still think that. But, you know, the, the historical consensus is that, you know, the president committed crimes and you know the nixon administration members of it uh you know committed crimes and were dishonest and it you know cost nixon the uh presidency you know obviously but uh you know i mean the watergate scandal is the 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 preeminent memory of that administration despite all of the other things that uh you know happened during that that period of time yeah yeah um Let's go next to Glenn in Corktown. Glenn, welcome to the show. Hey, Stephen. Thanks for taking my call. I think Uh these hearings are really important. I think they're really well done, and I think we need to continue with them. But let's not forget what Bill Barr said. This is where I think our future really needs to pay attention, and that he said that there were more Detroiters that voted for uh, Donald Trump in 2020 than 2016. Yes, there were. Almost almost 400,000 more. And I think we really need to focus on that. What happened? Why are we not getting the word out about, why are we not coming up with a better solution than, than Trump on, in the Democratic Party? That's mm. where we really need to focus. We need to say, listen, we're really going to support the people. Mm. You can trust us. This is what we're going to do. Yeah, Glenn, I really appreciate you calling and, and raising that point. It wasn't 400,000 more votes, but I, I think it was 4,000 more votes that he got here in in Detroit than he had than he had in in 2016. And and as a percentage of the votes that he got, he you know he wasn't getting a lot of support here in 2016 or 2020, but he he increased his his share quite a bit. Um, uh, you know, in in relative terms, and that's kind of one of the ironies of of the the outcries about uh, the result here the, the flip side of that of course is that the places where he got fewer votes in 2020 than in 2016 are, are, are precincts in places like Birmingham and uh, Bloomfield and West Bloomfield I mean upper income uh, heavily Republican places where he he lost support nobody suggested that there was fraud in Birmingham, for instance, or or in in Bloomfield, so that's that's important to keep uh, in mind. Uh, Rick, th- this question though of of the vote, uh, the sanctity of the vote, is something that that we are still kind of trying to sort through. And um, uh, you know, there are things that that the clerks and that the Secretary of State are trying to do to make sure that uh, that there isn't massive fraud uh, for for our elections. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, just today, a House committee, uh, just this morning while we were talking, um, adopted a bill that focuses on election worker, you know, election worker training. Mm-hmm. And there, you know, the, the rub is, is that when bills come up that are supposed to improve the efficiency or the quality of elections, that get, gets caught up in that argument over whether is this really about you know, making some marginal improvements in the quality of elections, because there's always something you can do better. There are hearings after every election to look at exactly that. Or is this about casting doubt on the results of the last election and casting doubt on the results of future elections? And, you know, that that just the tone of that debate, even though it's always there, you know, has, has changed dramatically, you know, between the last election and, and, you know, going into this next one. Okay, Rick Pluta, Senior State Capital Correspondent for the Michigan Public Radio Network. Always great to have you here with us. Always a pleasure to be with you, Steve. Thank you. Okay, that is going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow when we're going to talk with Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson about a new Secretary of State office that is opening right here in Detroit. We'll also talk with the author of a new book about how three refugees reshaped a Rust Belt town. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station. Your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.